Well, thank you very much. Um, it's a pleasure to be with you. It would be an even greater pleasure if I were with you in Rome, uh, as would be true for uh, others of us uh, who are participating in this. But um, I'm very glad to be joined in the way that we are joined with uh, other participants today. Um, let me just begin with uh, a couple of prefatory remarks, really. One is uh, about how I will proceed. I'll come to that in a second. But the other one really is, is by way of background. Um, and this is partly autobiographical, really. Um, I am a professional philosopher, and uh, my um, work as a graduate student was in um, the philosophy of mind and metaphysics. Uh, but prior to studying philosophy, uh, I had uh, a higher education in art and um, taught art and taught architecture in an architecture school. And um, for that reason, I think, uh, my kind of sensibility with respect to engaging with issues is not simply that of the of the metaphysician. Uh, I'm interested in diverse modes of knowledge. Um, and as well as, broadly speaking, aesthetic and artistic perspectives, uh, I have become increasingly interested in two other areas. One is history, and the other one is education. Um, one of the positions that was referred to in fact, two of the positions, two of the chairs that I hold, one is in uh, the Australian Catholic University is as a professor of philosophy of education and the uh, professorship in virtue theory is in the School of Education at Birmingham University. And this interest in education is long standing. Um, I mean, both in the theory as well as the practice of education is long standing. Um, but I've become increasingly interested in it in the context of philosophical inquiry, if you like looking at it from the point of view of the reception of philosophical ideas, the communication and reception of philosophical ideas, not just philosophical inquiries practiced by the philosopher. And with regard to history, um, my interest there are in history itself, in the history of philosophy, and uh, in the philosophy of history. But I'm become increasingly interested in the way in which philosophical thought has to be understood in terms of the period in which it occurs, but also what that period makes possible uh, in the nature of philosophical inquiry. And thoughts in that direction obviously move in the direction of relativism, the kind of relativism in question would be called historicism. I'm not a relativist, but I do think that we have to take history more seriously than perhaps philosophers or many philosophers are inclined to do. I don't just mean learning from history but learning the lesson that we are ourselves embedded in a certain period of history and that that conditions the possibilities of our thought. So the second, and, and why I've said all of that will perhaps become clear as I proceed. The second uh, prefatory comment is, a, is a, a one just to do with a procedure, how I intend to proceed. Um, as you will discover, it, it takes me a while to get to, to Thomas, and quite a while. Um, and... Uh, how I intend to do this is that I'm going to read the first part of this because it has a certain amount of detail in it that will be best preserved and secured if it's, if it's read rather than just extemporized. But then I will shift to extemporization when I come to talk about the Summa Contra Gentiles itself. So with all of that in the way of prefatory remarks and checking the time, I'm now going to uh, I'm now going to begin. As I say, you'll excuse me if I read part of this, but I think that's just the best way of making efficient and effective use of the time. There are two ambiguities in the title of this symposium: is belief in God reasonable? Humor, uh, Aquinas' Summa Contra Gentiles in a contemporary context. There are two ambiguities in that title. The first concerning the opening question: is belief in God reasonable? The second, the closing clause in a contemporary context. I observe this not in the spirit of pedantry, but because I want to consider certain interpretations of what is at issue, ones which may be different from those of other contributors, but which are relevant to Aquinas's circumstances and interests and to ours. So far as the Summa Contra Gentiles is concerned, I'll touch mainly on issues discussed by Thomas at the outset, of book one, chapters one to 12. But as I say, it will take me some time to get there. The question of the reasonability of belief in God is multiply interpretable. 
it may be treated as relative to a subject's other beliefs and attitudes. So where that subject, S, may be an individual or a group. Given that S believes that P and Q, is it reasonable for S to believe R? This aspect of relative credibility is itself ambiguous because it can be viewed narrowly, that's to say without regard to the status of those antecedent beliefs and attitudes, or broadly as also asking whether those are themselves reasonable. In a court setting, for example, it may be asked whether it was reasonable for someone to have believed or done something given their antecedent beliefs. But it may well be countered that this is an insufficient standard of reasonability since the prior attitudes may themselves be incredible or irresponsibly held. The issues of reasonable belief of foresight and foreseeability are common courtroom examples of this point. In these respects then, it may be granted by someone A, who might be an agnostic or an atheist at any rate, by someone A, who holds that believing in God is not reasonable, may be granted by such a person, that it was nevertheless reasonable for S to do so, given S's antecedent beliefs. This need not be a matter of condescension, however, since A may grant that the prior beliefs were themselves reasonable for S to hold, and would have been reasonable for others to hold by some more objective standard prevailing at the time or in the circumstances. A rationalist objector may counter, however, that this is all besides the point, since the question to consider is not the relative but the absolute one. It is, is belief in God reasonable, full stop. Now, while I agree there's nothing to be gained by unconstrained relativizing, um, if absolutism is the implied contrast, then I think it's overstated. First, if reasonability is related to having or having access to reasons and to the quality of those reasons, then some degree of relativity is entailed. And the only standard of reasonability that can be applied is a contextual one. To ask, is it reasonable to believe P simpliciter, either carries an unacknowledged implicit reference to something such as prevailing commonly held beliefs and associated normal cognitive processes, or to an idealized thinker with access to relevant proofs or evidence. On further consideration, however, the latter, the idealized thinker, somewhat like Adam Smith's impartial spectator in ethics or Kant's man of taste in aesthetics, tends just to be a more abstract version of the contextually reasonable thinker. Now, there is perhaps a step beyond this, namely to the omniscient reasoner. But that is a sophistical move, since it amounts to saying that a belief is reasonable if and only if it would be held by someone who knows everything relevant to its justification, which is close to tautological. Additionally, there's a degree of absurdity in asking if the omniscient reasoner would judge belief in God reasonable, since the omniscient reasoner would be God, or at least sufficiently godlike in respect of being all-knowing. The other respect in which the question, is belief in God reasonable, is ambiguous, is that while it may be asking if there are sufficient reasons to believe that there is a God, it may instead be asking whether it's reasonable other than by reference to reasons. So by way of analogy, consider the question, is belief in the existence of gold in some region reasonable? How might our subject S come to have a belief that there is gold there? Well, there are three broad possibilities. S inferred it from information about the terrain, the color of the soil, the underlying geology and so on. S derived it from the testimony of someone else, a testifier. Or C, S observed it. So they inferred it, they derived it from testimony or they observed it. Now the first, co the first course is a clear example of believing something on the basis of reasons. The second is somewhat different since one may simply defer to the testifier with or without supporting reasons for doing so. The third need not involve supporting reasons at all. To say, I believe there is gold there because I saw it, suggests a relation between two distinct cognitive states, perception, seeing, and holding true, believing. 
but this is somewhat misleading. For consider the actual occasion of observing the gold, seeing that there is gold before one. The content of this state is not that of a belief based on perceptual evidence. It is just that of the perception itself, a perceptual belief that there is gold there. This is not at any inferential or testimonial distance from the fact. It's a cognitive encounter with the fact. Belief on the basis of testimony need not be based on inferential reasons either. If someone tells you that Latin has no definite or indefinite article, no the, a, or an, one may believe that directly, without any inference of the form, this man is an expert, expert should be believed, this expert says that P, therefore I should believe that P, therefore P. Instead, one may simply believe it, having no reason not to. This need not be credulity, and in educational context, it's often an epistemic necessity. So in response to the question, is belief in the existence of gold in some place reasonable? There seem to be three kinds of positive answers. Yes, based on inferential reasoning. Yes, based on testimony. And yes, based on observation. And the last of these is not a case of giving reasons from which the belief is derived, as might but need not be so in the testimony case, where one's reason was that the testifier had said that he had observed it, and where some reasoning from that to the fact of the conclusion of the sort mentioned is carried out. Rather, the belief is the retained observational content, not an inference from it. Assuming that there are no reasons to think that the observer's vision was faulty, against which counter-reasons might have to be cited, we have, in the observation case, and perhaps in the testimonial one, reasonable belief without reasons. Now, this is not paradoxical, let alone contradictory, when we appreciate, as the example enables us to do, that reasonable can mean one of two things, either one, based on acceptable reasons, or two, being in accord with reason. Believing what you see, which, is the immediate case, which in the immediate case is believing perceptually, is in accord with reason, because if it were not, then perception could not be a source of knowledge, and then nor could testimony, and nor could a posteriori reasoning. So what we have thus far then is that whether belief in X is reasonable depends disjunctively upon three sorts of conditions. Either A, one has inferential reasons that rationally support believing in X, B, one has testimony that, that X, and either one, there are reasons for believing the testifier, or two, though there are no independent reasons for believing him, it's nevertheless in accord with reason to do so. And C, one has experience of X, and no reason to doubt the reliability of that, in which case, again, it's reasonable to do so. Now, bringing all of this to bear on the question of belief in God, we can see that there are three potentially reasonable openings to this, inference, testimony, and observation. And beyond those, there are combinations of them. Pure rationalists say it's only reasonable to believe in God if conceptual or metaphysical arguments can be given in its favour. Pure empiricists say that it's only reasonable if sense experience directly supports such belief. And pure testimonialists, if there were such, would assert that it's only reasonable if suitably placed testifiers witness to it. A pluralist, however, may draw on all of these and say that belief in God is reasonable if warranted by some interacting combination of rational inference, direct or related testimony and observation and perhaps other considerations besides, such as pragmatic efficiency and efficacy. And in that direction, you might think of a sort of pragmatic arguments uh, uh, for the existence of, or at least for belief in God, or belief of, uh, arguments for the reasonability of belief in God, Pascal and so on. Well, earlier I said there's a second locus of ambiguity in the general title, this concerning the clause in a contemporary context. 
grammatically, what that qualifies in the title is not the question, is belief in God reasonable, but Aquinas's Summa Contra Gentiles. The two, however, are thematically linked, since the aim is to address the reasonability question via consideration of this text, as it might be seen and drawn upon in a contemporary context. The ambiguity then, the second ambiguity that I'm concerned with, derives from the fact there are two relevant interpretations of the phrase in a contemporary context. The first is what one might term the prevailing culture, which perhaps is too deratiocinated and chaotic to be dignified as zeitgeist. In this connection, we need hardly contemplate introducing themes from the Summa Contra Gentiles into the, that contemporary context, unless in a very elementary and piecemeal fashion, in part because of the catastrophic loss of general knowledge of religious ideas. And it's not clear how that might be done or how it could have any uptake. I'm not saying it can't be done, but a lot of thought needs to go into uh, quite how that would be achieved or sought to be achieved. As regards pursuing the issue of the reasonability of belief in God, aided by some Thomistic ideas, this faces similar challenges, but in addition, the fact that the prevailing culture is increasingly disposed to consider belief in God as not just unwarranted, other than other perhaps than as a private preoccupation in the whatever floats your boat mode, but obsessive, weird, and associated with bigotry and intolerance. Now I say this not in a spirit of despair, but only to remind us of how very great is the challenge of engaging the contemporary culture. Just to illustrate this by reference to the association of religious belief with intolerance, this is connected to an unwitting and perhaps manipulated, or perhaps manipulated shift in the understanding of toleration from forbearance to approbation to celebration. So that someone who fails in respect of the second and third, approbation and celebration, is deemed intolerant. There's philosophical work to be done here, but it's of the nature of an analytic and critical propriedutic to any future presentation of natural theology or indeed of serious, coherent public uh, discussion of ethics and politics. The second sense of contemporary context pertains to the academic world. Apart from within broadly Thomistic circles and fields of non-aligned Aquinian scholarship, where the Contra Gentiles is approached as a common object of study, the forum into which Thomas and his writings are likely to be brought is that of mainstream philosophy of religion. That's to say, philosophy of religion of the sort that began to take its present shape more than half a century ago in the work of such figures as, as William Alston, Dewey Phillips, Terence Penella, Malvin Plantinga, William Rowe and others. This has a well-established agenda of topics, a taxonomy of arguments and a lexicon of terms all of which draw upon broader features of analytical philosophy, especially philosophical logic, philosophy of language, epistemology, and metaphysics. These fields of study tend to be pursued according to certain paradigms and to be governed by certain broad assumptions. Those include methodological and increasingly substantive naturalism, evidentialism, scientific realism, physicalism, event causalism, compatibilism about determinism and freedom, and atheism. While one can engage in philosophy of religion without being a theist, and even while sharing these generally inhospitable assumptions, it naturally tends to be the case that the incidence of religious believers is much higher in this area, philosophy of religion, than in any other field of professional academic philosophy. It's hard exactly to know quite hard to quantify this, but there's been some work done and the incidence of atheism among professional philosophers some, seems to be somewhat in the area between 75 and 80% of professional academic philosophers. Now this has, I think, two observable effects. Whereas, by the way, of course, in philosophy of religion, um, the percentage of believers of one sort or another is in the majority. So it's atypical within professional academic philosophy. 
This has, I think, two observable effects. Either contributors to um, the philosophy of religion, who are theists, try to avoid considerations and modes of thought liable to be problematic within that sphere for the defense of the rationality of belief in God, or else try to conform to the prevailing paradigms stylistically and to some degree substantially in the effort to secure a hearing and, what is not the same thing, of course, to have their work accepted. Neither effect needs be bad, but the tendency is either to fail to engage or else to overlook other ways of approaching the issues. So now let's consider another way. So next, consider, <coughs> excuse me, a radically different perspective. My title, What Has Metaphysics to Do with Wisdom, may call to mind, among some of you, a famous question posed by Tertullian. What has Athens to do with Jerusalem? This question is usually quoted in isolation and without reference to its source. So let me provide the context. It comes in chapter seven of the polemical work, Prescriptions Against the Heretics. That chapter being headed, the connection between deflections from Christian faith and the old system of pagan philosophy. <coughs> Tertullian, who we should recall, is often regarded as the first Latin Christian theologian and is no naive Philistine, writes referring to and quoting the apostle Paul as follows. Whence spring those fables and endless genealogies and unprofitable questions and words which spread like cancer? From all these, when the apostle would restrain us, he expressly names philosophy as that which he would have us be on our guard against. Writing to the Colossians, he says, this is Tertullian still quoting, uh, sorry, I'm quoting Tertullian, who's about to quote Paul. Writing to the Colossians, he says, see that no one beguile you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men and contrary to the wisdom of the Holy Ghost. Paul had been at Athens and had in his interviews with its philosophers become acquainted with that human wisdom which pretends to know the truth, whilst it only corrupts it and is itself divided into its own manifold heresies by the variety of its mutually repugnant sects. He continues, what indeed has Athens to do with Jerusalem? What concord is there between the academy and the church? What between heretics and Christians? Our instruction comes from the porch of Solomon, the cloister on the side of the, um, of the temple, who had himself taught that the Lord should be sought in simplicity of heart. Away with all attempts to produce, the mottled, to produce a mottled Christianity of stoic, platonic and dialectic composition. We want no curious disposition, sorry, no curious disputation after possessing Christ Jesus no inquisition after enjoying the gospel. With our faith, we desire no further belief. For this is our palmary faith, our victorious faith, that there is nothing which we ought to believe besides. Now, the words of Solomon quoted here are from Wisdom 1, which continues, for he is found by them that tempt him not, and he showeth himself to them that have faith in him. Elsewhere, Tertullian quotes, from, uh, quotes Paul from 1 Corinthians 27, railing against the wisdom of the philosophers. But the reference in the passage that I've quoted is to Paul's visit to Athens as recounted in Acts 17, 16 to 34, where Paul, having been in argument with Epicureans and Stoics, he's invited to present his philosophy on the Areopagus Hill. Acts tells us that Paul related the Christian message, including the resurrection of Jesus, at which point the mockery began. Nonetheless, it's said that he made some converts, of whom two are named, a woman, Damaris, and a man, Dionysius, the Areopagite. Now, in general, women were not admitted to the philosophical schools, the exception being the Stoics, interestingly 
So Damaris may have been a follower of Stoicism and conceivably the wife of Dionysius. That in fact is stated, she's stated to be such in early Georgian translations of Acts and in a letter of St. Ambrose and is suggested to be such in Raphael's study, Paul preaching at Athens. There is then an irony here that may subvert the invocation of Paul contra the philosophers, or at any rate may moderate it. At first sight, the um, Athens episode, which Tertullian recounts, may seem a clash of faith against reason. On this account, the conversion of Damaris and Dionysius who according to Eusebius later became Bishop of Athens, was a turning of them away from philosophy towards Christian faith. And mention of it is, in, is intended as evidence that the gospel is mightier than the dialogue. But on the basis of fable in the first case and misidentification in the second, both Damaris and Dionysius were later honored by Christians as religious philosophers. Indeed, it was the acceptance that the author was the Pauline convert that bestowed such prestige on the Corpus Dionysiacum, which drew commentaries from Grostesta, Albertus Magnus, and from Thomas Aquinas, who mentions Diogenes over 1500 times. Sorry, I said Diogenes, I mean Dionysius over 1500 times. A further point is that notwithstanding his denunciation of worldly wisdom, Paul's own hostility to philosophy may be ambiguous. There are plenty of ambiguities here. For as the philosophers say, it depends on what you mean by philosophy. In his Areopagus address, Paul says, quote, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. He himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Now in those last two sentences, Paul is quoting two philosopher poets, Epimendes from his Critica and Aratus from his Phenomena. Paul's relation to Stoic thought is a matter of scholarly debate. But that school, the Stoic school of philosophy, was well represented in the University of City of Tarsus, where he grew up. And there is a parallel between what Paul writes in Romans 1.18 and a tradition within Stoicism of natural theology. Compare then Paul in Romans. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and injustice of those men that detain the truth of God in injustice because that which is known of God is manifest in them. For God hath manifested it unto them. This is this, now this latter part to be given greater emphasis. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, his eternal power also and divinity, so that they, the people who deny this, are inexcusable, who deny God are inexcusable. Now compare that with the beginning of a section of Cicero's dialogue on the nature of the gods. I quote, the first point then, says Lucilius, the first point I think needs no discourse to prove it. For what can be so plain and evident when we behold the heavens and contemplate the celestial bodies as the existence of some supreme divine intelligence by which all these things are governed? What follow immediately in the dialogue are five or six arguments given by Balbus for a providential deity. Those arguments, by the way, are an argument from common consent, which was quite a popular one in every culture we find a belief in God. Argument from miracles, argument from order, argument from intelligence or mind, arguments from degrees of being or of reality, and arguments from tradition. Interestingly, the third and fifth of those Stoic arguments correspond to um, the fifth and fourth of Thomas's five ways. Now, Paul's epistle was written about a hundred years after uh, Cicero's dialogue, 
and he's likely to have been familiar with the Stoic theological tradition which it records. In fact, I think he's making reference to it for the purposes of his readers in Rome. At some point, where Stoicism was strong, at some point in the fourth century, a forger composed a series of letters between Paul and the Spanish Roman Stoic Seneca. They're referred to by St. Jerome, and like the Dionysian texts, were only finally disattributed in the 1400s. The point of these observations being that notwithstanding Paul's repudiation of philosophy and celebration of holy wisdom, or Tertullian's amplification of these attitudes, the relationship between faith and reason in the apostolic period was not unambiguously hostile. What was in line for attack is human vanity and the idea that by means of human thought, the mysteries of reality and of the meaning of human life might be solved and ultimate wisdom secured. Early Greek-speaking Christians knew that academic philosophy aspired to understand reality and human purpose and had no reason to repudiate those desires. What troubled them was that they were convinced that the way, the truth and the life, had been re revealed in the person of Jesus Christ and that instead of accepting the secure revelation, the secure revelation, the academicians continued with their vain and fruitless disputes, sophisters entangled in webs of their own making. The author of the prologue of John's Gospel addresses philosophically literate Hellenic Jews in Alexandria and Antioch when he writes, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him and without him was made nothing that was made. Our word here, Thomas's verbum, and uh, was for the Greeks, logos, the Greek speakers, logos. And that is a providentially Janus-faced and far-seeing concept. On the one side, logos looks to the Hebrew, looks towards the Hebrews, towards Genesis 1, in the beginning God created heaven and earth, Proverbs 8, when he prepared the heavens I was present, and to the personification of wisdom in Syrac, I made that in the heavens there should rise light that never faileth. But it looks on the other side to Greek philosophy, where it features in contemporary Stoic cosmology, but goes back to the middle of the previous millennium to the utterances of Heraclitus. Heraclitus is recorded as saying, therefore it's necessary to follow that which is for all, but although the Logos is for many, sorry, although the Logos is for all, many live as if they had a private understanding of the truth. Listening not to me, but to the Logos, it is wise to agree that all things are one. Earlier I said that Tertullian's Jerusalem Athens account of Paul's engagement with the philosophers made it look like a clash between faith and reason. But in light of the foregoing, and in terms of my earlier analysis, it might better be represented as a difference between two kinds of purportedly reasonable faith. Faith expressive of immediate experience and or of received testimony, in contrast to rationally inferred theory, metaphysics in this sense. In his account of Jesus' calling of his first apostles, Matthew 4.18 to 22 is bracingly brief. He writes, and Jesus walking by the Sea of Galilee saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishers. And he saith to them, come ye after me, and I will make you to be fishers of men. And immediately, leaving their nets, they followed him. I don't think that this was intended by Matthew to be understood as a short summary of a longer process of discourse, reason giving and deliberation. Matthew is telling us that for Simon, Peter and for Andrew, to see was to believe, to which I will add, and that their believing was reasonable. That is to say, it was in accord with reasons, with, with reason. So now I turn to the Summa Contra Gentiles itself. And as I said, at this point, I'm going to, um, there's quite a lot of material here, so I'm going to be selective and uh, just um, identify some points and 
leave, I hope, good time for discussion of them, or indeed of the earlier part already. So let me say, first of all, something about the character um, and introduction, uh, the overall character of the Summa Contra Gentiles and the opening sections, um, as I say, one to 12. There's significant discussion, scholarly discussion, and to some extent this has been adverted to already, about the relationship of the Summa Contra Gentiles um, to the Summa Theologiae. The um, Contra Gentiles is often seen as being uh, less theological and more philosophical. But I think there are two points about this that complicate uh, things. First of all, there's an ambiguity about the intended readership. Some uh, comments in the text suggest it's for heretics, that's to say for people who are Christian believers, broadly speaking, but who have departed significantly from Christian doctrine and associated practice. And for those who don't accept scripture, Mohammedans and pagans. But in other places, it looks for those Christians, it's intended for those Christians who lack the aptitude or inclination to work through what is knowable by reason and who therefore fall into error. Secondly, um, there is a curious conflation, it seems to me, of two directions of inquiry. On the one hand, the philosophical direction of inquiry, at least according to the methodology of Thomas, which he inherits from which he adopts from Aristotle, the philosophical order of inquiry proceeds from below. That's to say it starts with the things that are best known to us, accidents, and then from accidents infers propria, from propria infers substances, and inferring substances it comes to some understanding of essence. In understanding substances, in the particular case, it moves towards a philosophy of nature more broadly, and from that towards a metaphysics. So this is a movement from below. The theological direction, however, is otherwise. It proceeds from above. It begins with some account of the nature of God as given by revelation, and then, as were, applies that downwards through a theory of creation, and then um, down into the um, into the aspect of anthropology, human life, action, and so on. And um, if the supercontingentialist were to be seen to be a philosophical rather than a theological work, then you would think that it would proceed according to the philosophical methodology. But in fact, it doesn't. Um, it emphasizes Christian doctrine from the outset. In fact, it declares as its purpose to, to, um, to state and defend the truth which the Catholic faith professes while weeding out contrary errors, that's a quotation. Now, second point is that the whole matter is framed in terms of wisdom. And uh, Thomas tells us that within any given sphere of, uh, of activity, if there's a higher level, then the end of some particular um, activity is ordered to the end of the greater thing. So as well, the, the, the pharmacist is regulated under the end of health, which is the proper object um, of medicine. But then he thinks that we can sort of extend this until we reach to the highest kind of ordering and thereby correlate with that the highest kind of wisdom, understanding the highest kind of ordering. Now, with regard to that, then, a question arises, which is, does Thomas succeed in the Summa Contra Gentiles in establishing the existence of a highest principle, a first cause? I mean, he certainly seeks to. And secondly, does his effort in that direction warrant identification of that highest principle with God? Now, I think there are some difficulties here, and I'll return briefly to them uh, in a moment, but they can be matters for discussion. Interestingly and significantly, Thomas acknowledges uh, human limitations in inquiry. He says, quoting Aristotle, that part of an educated, part of the, an educated man to seek for conviction in each subject only so far as the nature of the subject allows. Now, it's interesting that he quotes this. This, of course, is Aristotle most famously quoted as citing this, uh, as saying this in relation to ethics. But it's interesting that he, um, 
he quotes it in this context because he's going to go on to um, talk about uh, demonstrations of the truth of uh, a metaphysical truth and of, of religious truth. And um, demonstrations require precision um, and are supposed to confer a complete conviction for a reason I'll, I'll come to in a second. The second uh, element of limitation is this, that um, he, he thinks that we can't know the essence of God. Um, we, we can come to know, I mean, he's even, he's even skeptical to some degree or agnostic, agnostic, I suppose I should say, about the extent to which we can come to know the essence of natural substances. He says that in fact, that as far as Thomas is concerned, science, inquiry, uh, proceeds not on the basis of essences, but on the basis of propria. Uh, essences are to be inferred from propria, but he says that often we don't, we did, we, all we ever know, the best we know are propria, not essences. But on the other hand, having said that, he wants to give us an argument, and this was uh, referred to um, by Gavin yesterday, uh, and I, I agree, I think this is perhaps philosophically the most interesting argument, actually, uh, which is an argument whose conclusion is that we do know something about God's essence, namely that God's essence is existence. Now, whether he should say it, it is existence or whether it contains existence, this is another issue, of course, famously, that might be discussed. But he also has this idea of degrees of knowledge as conditioned by the knower. And of course, this is the application of a general um, Thomistic principle that a thing is a property or a characteristic or a power is in the, in the subject according to the nature of the subject. And causality operates according to the nature of the subject and indeed according to the nature of the patient. So in education, for example, um, the way in which the teacher has the knowledge is not the same as the way as the way in which the pupil has the knowledge. And the knowledge is received by the pupil, by different pupils, according to their disposition and character. But this idea of degrees of knowledge actually features in uh, Thomas's account of what can be known of the nature of God, so that he thinks that, for example, angels can have a different and superior um, kind of knowledge of God's nature uh, to that which human beings can have. And then he also goes on to talk about the general deficiencies and limitations in human knowledge and the, and the sources of these. He talks about different temperaments, uh, different lives, degrees to which we're committed to other matters, how much free time we have, as it were, and laziness. Uh, but also the weakness, and I think this is significant, the weakness that comes from judgments due to the, what he calls the admixture with phantasms, with images, with what it, what is uh, the residue of their source, as the source of the ideas in ordinary experience. Now, as I say, several times he talks about demonstrations, and in fact, he, he claims a veritas demonstrativa, this, there's going to be, as were demonstrated truths um, about uh, the nature of the first principle, and indeed that these truths will be coincident with the truths of faith. Now, I think there are some problems about this, and I'll just mention these relatively briefly, though I think they're quite profound issues. There is, I think, in Thomas, a tension between rationalism and empiricalism, I'm not sure I want to say empiricism, but at any rate, between the idea that knowledge proper belongs to the exercise of reason exclusively proper, uh, whereas we've got something less than certain knowledge on the side of the empirical, but nonetheless, that's where, that's where we get our knowledge from. And this, I think, comes out in relation to the issue of concept formation. Where do we get our concepts from and how do we get them? Now, for Thomas, all our concepts originate in sense experience. They're not confined to the contents of sense experience, but they originate in sense experience. And this means that they are conditioned by the nature of, or at least this should mean, that they're conditioned by the nature of, of the subject. I mean, the, the sensible nature of the subject, the material nature of the, of the creature. And indeed, I think that's probably what he has in mind when he talks about weaknesses due to the admixture with phantasms or at least part of what he might have in mind. Here I think he's just simple-minded. Um, I think he's simple-minded about the nature of concepts and concept formation. He's overly individualistic, somewhat mechanistic, and doesn't really have an articulated account of concept formation. 
But I think he's also simple-minded about self-evidence. Um, famously, he has this, uh, sorry, and I should explain, this is important for the issue of demonstration. So a demonstration for Thomas is an argument, not just for Thomas, but I mean, in the tradition, going back to Aristotle, um, in the analytics, um, a demonstration is an argument whose premises are self-evident and whose conclusion is arrived at by deduction. So if we have a demonstrative proof, then what we began with could not be doubted, it's self-evident. Um, and since the, the, the uh, mode of inference is not probabilifying but entailing, that certainty is transferred from the premises to the conclusions by the deductive connection. Now, it's interesting, um, and Thomas has things to say about self-evidence. He talks about things that are self-evident in themselves, self-evident to us, and so on. But it's interesting, the, the example that he gives of self-evident, self-evident principle, he, he gives it here in the um, Summa Contra Gentiles, but he gives it elsewhere. Uh, in connection with his consideration of the ontological argument, is the uh, part-whole relation. Um, so what he tells us is, I'm just looking for the text here, what he tells us is that, um, if you give him his own words, those things are said to be self-evident which are known as soon as the terms are known. Thus, as soon as it's known what is a whole and what is a part, it's known that the whole is greater than its part. And this is a example that he gives is meant to, and obviously this is meant to be illustrative and utterly beyond um, dispute. There's no point giving as well a contentious example for this purpose. But of course the problem with his example is it's false. Um, so one thing that we know is that um, a, a set whose members are sets, whose members are infinite, is um, the, the whole, the the set of sets, or some uh, described set, uh, series of sets, each of whose membership is infinite is no less than the uh, size of the um, of the whole in this case, the totality of such sets. Now, I'm not saying there aren't things that can be said about that, but the first point, the point I simply want to make is that we're just straight off in the example of self-evidence, we hit as well controversy and difficulty. Um, and this, I think, raises a broader issue, which is it's a general feature of metaphysical systems, and whether it's a degree, it, it's a feature of um, empirical descriptions is another matter. I think it is, but I think to a lesser degree. It's a general feature of metaph metaphysical systems that they're like um, theories in science, particularly theories of unobservables, that the meaning of the terms in them is given by a network or role semantics. That's to say the meanings of these terms is given by the generalizations in which they feature. These are not observables, right? So they're, they're not empirical concepts. And uh, their, their meaning and significance, as I say, is, is given them holistically by the system of uh, generalizations that characterizes that domain. So if you try to say, for example, I mean, prior to the development of electron microscopes, which of course are themselves indirect and observationally indirect, um, we would say that, you know, the characterization of an electron is given by its role within the theory in which it features. Now, what this means is that there's a certain relativity of um, metaphysical concepts to the metaphysical theories within which they feature. And metaphysical theories, and I think this is, as I say, true of empirical theories, particularly if they're where they become theoretical, where they become abstract, is that they're underdetermined by the evidence. That's to say there's more than one theory that's compatible with the application of certain kinds of concepts, but it's just that how those concepts are defined will be relative to the different theories. And I think this undermines, together with some pluralism, about understanding the entailment relation, <coughs> I think this simply means that we cannot any longer believe in demonstrations in the sense in which Thomas does. That's to say, there are no extra theoretical self-evident truths, or another way of putting that is that self-evidence is relative to a scheme. And 
even the inferential relation is complexified in various ways we've come to see, so that the aspiration to provide strict demonstrations is, I think, one that we can no longer share. Um, there can be demonstrations contextually <laughs> relative to a set of axioms in which, the, which certain terms are defined by those axioms, but there's nothing obligatory <laughs> about adopting that set of axioms. So if we just think, for, to use another analogy here, <coughs> for Thomas, it was axiomatic that um, parallel lines couldn't meet. But we have several non-Euclidean geometries in which parallel lines can cross. So the notion of a parallel line doesn't stand, as it were, outside a theoretical framework. It is itself uh, to be defined in terms of a, a theory. And those the definitions that are provided will have different implications according to the theory. So I think that there are, the, the, one of the problems here is this, and this particularly afflicts the metaphysical arguments as opposed to natural, um, um, the philosophy of nature arguments, though it may also afflict those, is that there are no self-evident premises and even the entailment relation is subject to sort of theoretical variability or relativity. Now, I want to, um, I, I, well, what does that mean? Well, I think it, it doesn't mean that there can't be interesting arguments, but I think that they are probabilistic, not in the sense that they're inductive, but rather that they have to be assessed in terms of the reasonable plausibility of the adoption of that system in which a concept, say, such as existence is defined as against some other system. <coughs> One has to make a choice between systems, and the systems themselves don't do that for you. And so there has to be the exercise of a kind of judgment, which I think is within the framework of what's accord with, in accord with reason, but understood as reasonability in this broader sense. Now, I'm just going to conclude, and sorry, I realize the time has run on, but I'm just going to be, conclude very quickly by saying, returning to my title, what has metaphysics to do with wisdom? Now, Thomas adopts from Aristotle the distinction between practical and speculative philosophy and therefore has two concepts of wisdom, practical wisdom and um, speculative wisdom. But I think that uh, Plato does not do that, by the way. Plato doesn't draw that sharp distinction, and nor I think should we. I think there is a non-contingent connection between uh, one's conception of the nature of reality and how one ought to live, put it like this. It's part of an understanding of the nature of reality for agents that they should live according to that understanding. So as it were, there's a, if you're an atheist, there's a way that you should live that is based as, as it were on the metaphysics of atheism, you might say. And if you're a theist, there's a way that you should live that's based upon that. But the connection between these is not a contingent one. Um, in the, once you've made the distinction between two kinds of philosophy, uh, speculative and practical, there's a question of conjoining them so why should metaphysical implications, why should metaphysical truths have practical implications? Now, Thomas does discuss this, but the relations look somewhat contingent in matter for discussion. So what do I want to say? Well, what I want to say is this, the question of whether it is reasonable to believe in God shouldn't be confined to the question as to whether or not there are reasons to believe in God. We have to think more broadly about the role of testimony, the role of experience, of course, the role of arguments as well. Um, but we also have to think that the relationship, that which is related to wisdom, is not metaphysics in the modern narrow sense of that, but something like philosophy in a broader sense that combines these different modes of reasonability. And I think that all of that said, we can draw upon Thomas not only of Thomas, of course, but a, a, a broader range of Thomas in thinking about um, the question of the reasonability of belief in God. But it's not best pursued, I suggest, by um, the effort to try to find uh, strict demonstrations of the existence of a first cause, in part because those are subject to the relativities that I've described, but also because it's not clear what the relationship is between a first cause and the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So thank you.
Thank you, Professor Haldane. Um, the first uh, question comes from Professor Kerr. Go ahead. Yes. Hey, yeah, thanks very much for that. Um, I really enjoyed it. I had a question on some of the earlier material in your paper, but then when you got to the stuff at the end on demonstrations for the existence of God, I felt I had to change my question a little bit. <laughs> um, I'm just wondering, um, this, you know, the, the relativity of um, the different metaphysical systems and the sort of holism which is involved in that, I'm wondering, does that suffer from something of the myth of the given? such that um, we can have these different metaphysical systems, but when it comes to, say, the truth of the matter, um, which is, you know, meant to constrain us in what we think, that's independent of these metaphysical systems. So it's something given um, uh, in the mythical sense as, you know, being free from, um, you know, any sort of conceptual content involved from the metaphysical systems, because if that is the case, then I think straight up a Thomist is going to reject that sort of, you know, that sort of dualism of givenness and, you know, conceptual content built on top of it, because I think a Thomist will be committed to the view that uh, conceptual content is involved throughout experience of the world and our metaphysical categories and um, met metaphysical realities that we recognize are drawn from um, our rational engagement with the world and experience. And so, I'd just like to your, yeah. your input on that. Yeah. Um, well, so two things in there. I mean, let me pick up the, the expression you used about your sort of sixth last word, as it were, which was drawn from. Now, this is, uh, I think, rather important because the, I mean, this touches on the issue, which obviously would need a lot of discussion in its own right, really, on the nature of concept formation, according to Thomas. Logic for Aquinas and indeed for other medievals, interestingly, is really a kind of branch of ontology. Um, we think of logic as formal and independent of your metaphysics, as it were, or substantive claims about the nature of things. They didn't, right? They just think these are higher orders of abstraction. And so, you, you know, you go, well, I don't need to go into that, but anyway, you're just, you're proceeding from experience up to more and more abstract. But the concepts that you have, as it were, are orderings at the higher level of something that was given at the lower level. Now, when I say something was given at the lower level, I don't mean the given in the sense of the preconceptual. You can say that what is given is already conceptualized, right? I see things as things, right? It's not that I have this other sort of pre-conceptualized form of sight and then or of experience. Um, so that's okay, but nonetheless, it's still the case that what we have at the higher level is conditioned by what we had at the lower level. And what we have at the lower level is conditioned by our sensibility. So the concepts that we have of the world, and I think even the abstract concepts that we have, are conditioned by the kind of nature that we have. And if we had a different nature, we might have a different set of concepts, including a different set of, well, I mean, this is just the point, right? Different set of metaphysical concepts. So somebody has to produce an argument to say, no, these are the, wherever you start, these are the concepts you have to end up with, right? And that becomes a larger issue. So I, I'm just going to leave it there, but to say that, yeah, there are, you know, there are nice issues there and important issues there. Thank you. So Roger asks, don't you think that the notion of demonstration that you use to discuss Aquinas is very different from his conception of demonstration? Finally, isn't the notion of demonstration in your criticism very modern and itself historically very relative? Um, I'm not quite sure that I understand that. The notion of demonstration, I mean, the conception of demonstration that I've read reference to is the conception of demonstration with which Thomas works, which is drawn from Aristotle's uh, analytics. I mean, it, it goes back to the idea that um, in a given science, you proceed from first principles, and an interesting question how you get to those first principles, but for Thomas, for Aristotle and Thomas adopts this, there's an, a parallel between acquiring a concept and acquiring a first principle, and how this is done is by abduction, by abstractive um, induction, by seeing the universal in the particular. But the point is that Thomas thinks that you only have a science, an organized body of knowledge, if you have first principles, axioms, that are self-evident. And then, this is of course an idealized notion, and then um, particular claims 
are derived from the axioms deductively. So that model self-evidence plus deduction is the model of demonstration got from Aristotle and endorsed by Thomas. That's not a modern notion. I mean, to some extent it's, it's, it's preserved, but, and, but actually it's only really preserved in modern philosophy. Well, I mean, it's reached in various ways, but in, in formal logic. I mean, as obviously metaphysics aspires to the condition of that, but, but I'm not importing a conception of demonstration that isn't in Thomas, I think. Professor Wahlberg from oh, yes. will ask his question now. Thank you very much for this very fascinating presentation. Uh, I was just wondering how you would uh, deal with the risk of relativism in yeah. this, if, if this picture that you're presenting at the end here, uh, how do you address the issue of, of relativism? You, you said that uh, metaphysical frameworks or theories are underdetermined by the evidence. And I suppose that means that you can have several different mm. overarching or fundamental frameworks that are all compatible with, with the evidence in some sense. And how, how then do you avoid uh, relativism, if that's the case? Well, I mean, this touches on an interesting question, of course, which is what the relativist needs to have a great make sense of for us is the idea that there's a way things are that are, is being differently conceptualized in these different, according to these different theories, let's say. And there may be no way of stating that. I'm thinking here famously of, of Davidson's argument against um, conceptual relativism and so on. It doesn't show that relativism is false. It just shows it can't speak its name, as it were, right? Uh, it, it could be a, an ineffable <laughs> but inexpressible fact. But I, let me go back to something as well more serious, because I think that it's this that I think and this is really the point of the earlier stage. I think that what we have to go for is plausibility in the light of total of the totality, right? And the totality here is testimony, observation, argument, absolutely everything, right? And now what you have to do is, or is fit your metaphysics into ordinary experience, ordinary experience into what is part of tradition and things of this sort and so on. And then you have to go for, as it were, plausibility, you know, in, in selecting, as it were, your... What is reasonable to believe is what is reasonable in the light of, oh, I'll just put it this way, total evidence. I, evidence isn't really quite the word I want here, but it's well, the totality of things that are available to one. And um, is that going to determine, uh, I think that's going to leave it open to somebody to say, I have a different judgment about that. But that's not so much relativism, it's the question of disagreement, as it were. Of reasonable disagree. Well, whether it's reasonable, because some things will be eliminated. You know, it's a little like this business of you know literary texts and so on. I mean, some interpretations are just so crazy we can just dump those, right? But how do we get to the best? Is there a single unique best uh, interpretation of a text? Well, is there a single unique best interpretation of reality? The question of whether there is a the way that the world is is different from whether we are in a position, whether we have methods for determining what the unique account of reality is. And that's why I think we have to shift to things like revelation, that they don't, they, they're, they're part of as well the totality. Now, of course, you can replay the story about whether a revelation is, but then revelation has to be tested against experience, right? And so the question is, some, comes some, you know, Chesterton says, for example, that, you know, the one bit of Christianity that can be proved beyond doubt is the doctrine of original sin. Now that's rhetorical, of course, but, it, but actually I think there's some truth in this. Right? What renders a, what renders the Christian or aspects of the Christian story plausible is what we already know independently of the Christian story. That's, by the way, the method of Augustine in the Confessions of trying to, as it were, speak to our souls of what we already know from experience. But sorry, I mean, that's a large issue, of course. But not oh, yeah, I, I, hope, I agree. We have to distinguish pluralism with regard to theories is not relativism with regard to theories. Okay, but what, what I hear you saying is something like uh, Davidsonian coherentism, something like that. 
Well, I think Davidson has, because, I mean, it's not, you know, perhaps not everybody's going to be interested in this, but let's just take coherentism in a looser sense, right? And I mean, not sort of defining it as a theory about, I'm not saying it's a theory about truth, right? But maybe as a theory about belief, something like coherentism is right, right? Not as a theory about truth, but as a theory about belief. But can you, can you avoid the implication, I mean, if this is correct, can you avoid the implication then that truth is also determined by coherence? Uh, how, 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 could, how can you uphold the idea of some kind of correspondence theory of truth uh, given this kind of coherentism about, about evidence and... and uh, and this, this kind of underdetermination yeah. of theory by the evidence. And... But that, that, I'm going to have to cut this short because I see this. I've been given instructions as to how, how this can go on for. But oh. the um, I think that coherentism, at least as I'm concerned with it, that's why I said I'm distancing myself from a coherence theory of truth. It falls on the side, if you like, of epistemology, on the side of the methods of knowing and that, that kind of thing. Okay, um, and what I was putting into play was this through this loosened notion of reasonability, which isn't necessarily reason-based reasonability, right? Uh, putting what comes through that observation and testimony together with what comes from reason-based reasonability, right? And then it's the coherence of the totality of that. That that's to say, has to be understood in terms of the totality of that. Now that's a point about understanding. It's not a point about truth. Now, if you're asking me, is it possible that, the, that you know, one's best account of things could be false? Then I think it's an, impl- I mean, that's a very interesting question. And I, if, I'm, if I'm believing in the independence of truth, then the answer looks as if it is yes. Thank you very much.